evening again. What a joy to be able to make much of Christ together. What a wonderful encouragement for the heart, for the soul to do such a thing. Welcome to everybody here in person. For those who are following along with us online, welcome to you and your families. Uh, we have the joy of continuing on in our series in Exodus. And we're getting into some of the nitty gritty stuff of what it looks like to be God's people, following after God, dwelling with him. And, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Exodus chapter 22. We spent three weeks in Exodus 20. And this week, we're going to consider 21, 22, and 23. So how about that, right? Um, and once, we, we, once you see kind of where we're moving in Exodus, it makes for interesting decisions as a preacher. How, how much are we going to dig into some of the nitty-gritty? How much are we going to get the big picture? And how can we toggle both of those things? So I'm going to try to do the toggling, all right? Because you probably don't want to be in Exodus until Christ returns. So we will work through this um, carefully, but we're going to get some bigger chunks. And I think you'll see why as we do that. All right. So to consider Exodus 21, 22, and 23, we're going to read just a portion at the end of 22. And we're going to read the first nine verses of 23. They'll be on the screen, but if you're following in your Bibles, we're going to start at verse 20 of Exodus 22. These verses that we're going to read are going to give us a sense of what God's instructions are for his people and the way that they are to live out this newfound redemption and deliverance that they have received. Let's read Exodus 22, starting at verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice 
do to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. As we come to your word, uh, we certainly need your help. Help in seeing its aim and, and direction in the lives of your people. God, I pray that you would be with us during this time to your glory and to our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be countercultural? To truly be countercultural? Simply put, the, the definition for countercultural means that you would live accordingly, um, accordingly different uh, set of values and priorities than that of the main culture around you. Something else is shaping your values and your priorities for life than the sort of main accepted way of living in the world around you. So by way of that simple definition, the Christian life is very much in itself counter-cultural. It is shaped by values and perspectives and priorities that are very different than the world around the believer. Now, we can certainly think of being counter-cultural in a much more contentious, aggressive way. I think the last couple of years have seen that come to light, and at least in our culture. And I think it would bring harm to what we're actually called to do, to treat countercultural living in such an aggressive way. Instead of thinking of this as a culture war, perhaps, perhaps, just maybe, we should see living counterculturally in light of displaying the grace of God to the world around. If our hearts are to delight in God as ultimate, then our lives are to display what that delight looks like, sounds like, feels like. Now that would be really remarkably counter-cultural, wouldn't it? To sound like, be like, feel like, act like the God Of all grace. Keep that thought. Close. Because it's really. A sound. A melody. If you will. That should lead into. The way that we live. What we see here. In these chapters. And what we read a portion of. To get a sense of. Is really what this life in covenant relationship with God is to look like for the Old Testament people. That it would be countercultural to the world around them. And as we think through this and as we work through this and try to then take what was specifically said to them and eventually end up where we are right now, 21st century, here, we we are going to look at it in two ways. That counter that covenant life as countercultural shows up in these two ways: first, a new life that delights in God. 
Now, we've been hitting that, and we're going to continue to hit that. Our delighting in God is crucially necessary and important to our, then, the second point, a new life that displays His grace. Our delighting in God does a radical work in us, so God does a radical work in us, and that radical work in us that changes the way that we perceive everything shows up then in different ways in which we live. New ways. Profoundly new ways that just happen to be profoundly countercultural. So let's work through that together. There's some things that I need to care for so as to move forward in this section of Exodus. Because it's filled with a number of things that we need some great clarity around. First, let's consider a new life that delights in God. Two things that we're going to say here. First, we need to take a moment to see the place of the law for the covenant people. All right? The place of the law for the covenant people of God. That's what we need to do. So we got to get into here, Exodus, first. Second, from that, we need to see the place of the law in light of the gospel. So then we're going to telescope out to consider the whole of Scripture, which then it really helps us then come into our lives in the here and now. So we're going to zoom in to the place of the law for the covenant people, and then we're going to zoom out and get a sense of the law in light of the gospel. So that's our first aspect of working through this, is to see then a new life that delights in God. So let's think about the law in the Old Testament together for a moment. I hope to not lose anybody. (laughs) So stay with me. You who are younger, stay with me. Hopefully, all the way through. First is this, in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we find 613 commandments given by God to the Old Testament people. 613. Nothing magical about that number, just 613. What do we do with those? That's quite a bit. That's, that's a few. Now, they're certainly sort of summarized, if you will, in the, in the Ten Commandments. That Those Ten Commandments sort of give the foundation for the rest For sure. But what do we do with those 613 commands given by God to his people? And those commandments are to mark, really, the course of how they were to live now in covenant relationship with him. So the law is serving as like these these barriers, these boundary lines, if you will, that, that held these two parties, God and the Old Testament people, together. They were the boundary lines of dwelling with God. Again, our series is called Delivered to Dwell. So God delivered them out of slavery and oppression in Egypt to bring them to the place where they would dwell with Him. So right now, He's showing them through His law what that dwelling will be like once they get into the land. This is how you dwell with me as your God. So these 613 commands are giving them a sense of of who God is, a reflection of him, and what that means for God's people, how they were then to live. One scholar named Doug Stewart said this, no rules, no relationship. So if there's no boundaries to what that relationship between God and redeemed people would be, then there's really not much of a relationship. I think we can see some of that in just earthly relationships, right? No rules in marriage, not really much of a marriage. So in that sense of it, 
we get a, a, a framework, a thinking, an idea. Now, when we come to the law, we find three kinds of law in the Old Testament. We found the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law, we see summarized in the Ten Commandments, which we considered for those three weeks prior to this morning. It gives us a, a reflection of who God is. It, it, it helps us understand the, the expectations of what it looks like to be God's people in terms of the moral perspective and manner of living. Second one is the civil law. And the civil law is specific to Israel. It's the outworking of the moral and how they were to live as a culture and society, as a nation. So it's the outworking of the moral law, foundation, in how they were to be as a society. And then there's the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law deals with the religious relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. So in the ceremonial law, God makes all sorts of provisions for the reality of a sinful people. They're going to mess up. They're going to do things that go against the covenant boundaries that God has in place. They're going to fail time and time again. But God's not going to crush them. He's going to provide for them in the ceremonial law means by which that they can approach him in worship. When we think of those three, we certainly can see how Jesus fulfills the moral law for us. He does what we could not do perfectly. And we certainly can see how Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law and that he is that ultimate provision for sinful people. But what do we do with the civil law? Because guess what? What we just read this morning in these chapters that we're looking at is exactly that, the civil law. So that takes me a second here to just explain a little bit of a specific dynamic of what we're looking at in the scope of God's Redemptive history. So if you were thinking of history as a timeline, we're at a very specific point on that timeline in which God has established a very unique relationship with a singular people on earth. All right? That word is called theocracy. So there should be a slide for that. I hope there is. Is there? Nod, yes. Okay, thank you. Because I'm at a bad angle. I guess I'd have to lean in. Anyway, all right. So theocracy. That means this. It is a system of government under God. God's the ruler during the days of Israel from Moses to the establishment of King Saul, which is the earthly king that then Israel wanted so badly for themselves. All right. So we're talking about a very specific subset of time and a very unique relationship that God established with a specific people. Now, all of that connects to God's overarching promise in the Bible that he would back to Genesis 3:15 crush the serpent and how that promise gets more details to Abraham how Abraham I'm going to make you into a nation and then from you you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. So we're we're still following that one thread, that one promise that God would do in the course of history. Here in this very unique moment, we see these codes, these laws were given to Israel as they were becoming a nation. Unique in all the world and in time. So that aspect of it means the specific things that we read here are not necessarily binding on our conscience 
in the way that we would read of the moral law of the Ten Commandments. Because we don't live in a land that has, has, that has a very unique covenant relationship with God. Our nation does not have that. So we have to be very careful with the aspects of the Old Testament that we don't sort of superimpose them over our constitution and our nation because we don't have that same unique relationship with God. We are not a sense like covenant nation uh, with God. We are a nation that has some Christian principles in its foundation, but that does not mean the same here as what we're reading and considering in Exodus. That being said, we can see significant, important things in these laws that do apply to our lives. One of the things that we find here, and we'll come back to these in a moment, we see the heart of God. When you read through these chapters, you see God's heart for people, all kinds of people, in all kinds of situations. That's important. Can't overlook that. Secondly, we see that in these laws, very crucially important, meaning meaningful per- principles for life. Again, they're really the outworking of the moral law and the way a society should function. So we definitely can glean from these very important things to apply to our lives. So that's what we want to not miss is that we find what God cares about in these laws. That should be important for one's delighting in God as ultimate, that we care about what God cares about. And then two, we see that there are principles that can be applied to our lives and how we live out our lives here in the 21st century. You're probably not going to find your neighbor's or your enemy's donkey under the burden of its work, Right? Maybe, I don't know. There's some outskirts in New Hampshire that I haven't hit to. So maybe you might. I don't know. (laughs) If that specific one applies to you, then like take heart and courage and go do it. All right. (laughs) So we got to work this out. And that kind of leads us to the second little sub point in here as our sort of understanding that this is all connected to our delighting in God as ultimate. It's to understand the place of the law, specifically the civil law in light of of the gospel in light of the gospel. We are certainly, if you think back to that timeline, I asked you to put in your head there for a second. We are in a very different point on that timeline. The things that God was pointing to the promises, the purposes, the prophecy, the people, the places, all of these things of the old Testament are moving forward in anticipation of great fulfillment in Jesus. And we're on the other side of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. So we hit on that timeline very differently. So how then do we take what Jesus has accomplished for us and what we read here? We don't want to skip over these things like they're not important anymore. So we want to take into context then what we do with the civil law in light of the gospel. First of all, let's not forget our guideposts. We had some guideposts that we mentioned a few weeks back. Uh, As we approach into like God's law sections of the Old Testament. What do we do with these in light of, 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 in light of the gospel. Well, remember, first guidepost is the law is good. So what we read in, in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, it's good. It's good because it's from God. It's good because it's a reflection of God's character. We can't say this is bad. It's good. Secondly, if you remember that guidepost, 
They're also incredibly hard, much harder than we think. We can't keep them. We will fail. If we try to keep them, we will mess up. What they really do is reveal to us our own heart issues. So they're good, but they're hard. Thirdly, we see and know in the scope of Scripture that Jesus fulfills the law. He does what we can't to give what we would never earn on our own. And then fourthly, the law, and this only applies to those who are in Christ. The law is now a delight that we can better know and follow God. In Christ, who took the burden of it all, who held it up perfectly, so that all those in Christ, through faith, aren't carrying that burden, Christ carries it. So now the law becomes to us a delight that we can better know God and follow Him. All right, so those four guideposts are important because with respect to number three and number four, what do we do with then the civil law? If the civil law is very unique in a moment of time, what do we do with that? Well, think through this carefully with me. Jesus upholds the moral law without fault. And it's easy for us to see how Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. Well, we, we have a whole commentary on that in the New Testament in the letter of Hebrews. The letter of Hebrews shows how Jesus fills every aspect of the ceremonial law for us. There's no going back. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He did it. He covered it. He covered the sin so that sinful people can have a relationship with a holy God. It's amazing. But he also then fulfills all that is required in the civil law. Jesus is anticipated in the Old Testament. All those people, all those places, all those promises, all those prophecies that we read in the Old Testament about what God would do. They're hints and shadows pointing forward to the reality. Jesus is the reality. In the Old Testament, it's the, it's the, the drawing, the faint images, the, the shapes that you kind of see. But then Jesus is the 4D, like all in HD care, like color, color and, and clarity that we can see with vividness. He is what the Old Testament is leading us to see. So when it comes to Adam, for example, Jesus is, as the New Testament sees it, the, the second Adam who does what the first Adam couldn't do. And when we see all these promises that, that God makes, Jesus is the, the fulfillment of those promises. So when we get to then the people of God, Israel, we find that Jesus, get this, is the Israel who doesn't fail. The Israel who doesn't break covenant. He is the fulfillment of what we see God's purposes are for Israel. That means then, all those who are in Christ, those who have faith in him, trust him, who are united to him through faith, gain what Christ has. And so if Christ has done all the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial for God's people, then God's people who are in Christ have it all cared for by Christ. As one pastor famously 
did in a long line of, of like fill in the Old Testament blank. He would say, Jesus is the true and greater Adam, and so on and so forth. Jesus is the true and greater Israel. He is all that God promised. And so the church is all who are in Christ. And therefore have all that is in Christ. It's remarkable. Even here in these chapters are yours in Christ. So as we think through this amazing dynamic of how now our hearts delight in God as ultimate, we see how ultimately God has provided. Grace, the gospel of Jesus, provides what the law demands. What the law demands is perfect righteousness. And Jesus provides perfect righteousness. Law demands, gospel grants. Even taking time to consider the civil law instructions should move our hearts toward Christ. He is the perfect righteousness for us. He is the means by which we can dwell with God. And then as you continue on in your Old Testaments, you see like God keeps moving forward in these promises. The covenant word. So he made one with Adam and made one with Noah and made one with Abraham, made one here with Moses. He makes another one with David, who's the king, who's anticipating the work that Jesus would do. And there's one more after David before Christ arrives, and that's called the new covenant. And, and that's the part where God says, all right, that promise that I made at Abraham in that little incredible scene where I'm taking on the responsibility of both sides of the covenant. Well, I'm going to bring that fulfillment here in full measure. And so it's a sort of restatement in this new way that we find in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to hear these words. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Notice it's not stones anymore. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer should each one teach their neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. I mean, that's where this is moving. And so as we read here in Exodus 21, 22, 23, and you get a sense of this nature in which God's people are to live and how impossible it would be to do this perfectly, it puts us back in that crisis that we keep feeling. And that crisis is we can't carry this burden of what it would take to have fellowship and relationship with God. And God knows that. 
And God provides for that fully, finally, and forever in Jesus Christ. So that the times that you pass the neighbor you can't get along with and his donkey, and you drive right into your garage and close the door, that, that aspect in your heart that rather give judgment than grace. For all the times that that rules you, Christ never once failed. And all those in Christ have a yes and amen, promise fulfilled in Jesus. Even here. It's amazing. It should move our hearts to delight in God. He would take on the burden of perfect righteousness for us. Then that should then, again, propel us into looking at how then we should live. And that moves into the second point, a new life that displays his grace. Displays his grace. As I said earlier, there were two important things that we can gain out of this. One we get to see God's heart on display in the civil law. We get to see God's heart. Two, we get to see that he is all about transformed countercultural living in the lives of his people. So let's consider that together. On display in these chapters are ultimately a reflection of God's heart. I encourage you to read them on your own or as a family at some point, just all the way through. Those, those three chapters, you see God's heart on display. And I want you to notice some things along the way. God provides justice and provision for justice for those who would otherwise be easy to exploit. In terms of living out as a culture and society, God built into his law for his people provisions for justice for those who would be easy to exploit. As you read through these chapters, you find slaves and virgins and poor, the orphan, the widow, the lowly, all of them. God cares for. God cares for the sojourner. God commands his people to not exploit them for their own personal gain and power. You see God's heart on display here. It reveals a heart that God has for those who are of a low estate in a culture and society. And it reveals his heart for his covenant people. That they would not reflect the way of life the pagan nations around them would live. So as you read these instructions, and as we read through 22 and 23, and all those things that God was leading his people to do and be, Keep the context of the world around them is living in the opposite of that. They lived with, within a context that is, that is just, that was their culture to exploit those who were low to keep themselves propped high. They built entire systems and structures in place to continue that. We just read of one earlier in this book. They built an entire system and structure to keep the Hebrew people in place in Egypt. Making law the murdering of their own babies. 
all around them were cultural values that rejected God and brought great injustice to image bearers. And God's civil law is that you will not live like that. Reveals the heart of God. And that should matter to those of us who delight in God as ultimate. We care about what God cares about. There's an incredible verse later in the Old Testament that sort of summarizes this for us. That's Micah 6, 8. Some of you know this verse. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does God, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. That's what he cares about. That, that heart that God has should be the kind of heart that is formed in us as we look at the world around us. To not be shaped by cultural values that are not embracing God as ultimate. Because whenever we reject God as ultimate, any kind of injustice to human beings will soon follow. These are the things that God cares about. You see them on display in these chapters. And then we also see that his aim is that there would be transformed countercultural living on display through his people. That delighting in God leads to just living. As I've said many times already, reject God and justice will soon follow. So what we find here in these chapters we get a glimpse of the depravity of the heart of man. Man's heart will think of any way to exploit and keep and gain and do it all the more. I don't have to convince anybody in here of that. Left to our own heart, we'll figure out some way to get more cookies when our parents are asleep. Systems and structures and loopholes are found and developed and exploited to secure gain. And much of the laws that we read here reflect a care for the easy to exploit, but also serve as warnings against the heart that is eager to exploit. Because the world around them was a only the strong survive, pagan world, a plurality of deities with ridiculous worship practices, all means of keeping people in a low estate so as others can stay in a higher one. All of that runs against the character of God and has no place operating in the life of his people. So we see this, the depravity of man inherent in these laws. We also, in these chapters, get a glimpse of God's purposes to transform his people to a new way of life. Let's not skip by some important details about this group of people at the base of Mount Sinai. Keep in mind that they were under the burden of slavery in a faraway land with a buffet of deities for 400 years. It was the world they knew. 
That's their spiritual muscle memory. That's what their context was. They were surrounded by a culture that was anti-Yahweh and filled with all sorts of vile injustices. Just everywhere. It's all they knew. They would need to be refined. They would need to be changed. They would need to be transformed. All that into account. Principally, that is the same for you and I this day. We are surrounded by a world that has shaped us far more than we could possibly realize. And we need to be refined and we need to be changed and we need to be transformed because our spiritual muscle memory is to put on Netflix for the next 17 hours. No, what we need is God to continue to be at work in us, equipping our heart to delight in him as ultimate so as to display how awesome his grace is to this world. And that, my friends, is going to be countercultural in every way. And in Christ, you're not going to believe this, but guess what? In Christ, God has made way for us to experience such transformation. He has provided yet again In Christ, living this new way is a delight with which we can better know God, follow God, and display his grace. There's a very important verse at a very critical point in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 12, 2. Many of you may know this verse, but it comes at a very pivotal moment in the outworking of his letter. He just spent 11 chapters like deep diving in the sovereignty of God for salvation, like just exploding the head and heart with incredible doctrinal truth of all that God has done and why and what that means and how it shows up in our lives. And then 12 through 16, the rest of the letter, he he then walks through how that incredible gospel, that God of this incredible salvation, like what that does in terms of how we live. So really it's following a very similar pattern of Exodus. There's rescue and there's, and there's transformation. There's delivered to dwell. So in a way, you could say that Romans is sort of the theological outworking of what God is doing in Exodus. And there in Romans 12, 2, what do we find? As he shifts the gear from this is the awesome gospel, an awesome God of this awesome grace. Now, here's how it shapes your life. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't have your values, your priorities, the way that you look at life and live it out be shaped by this world. Instead, what? Be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That your head, your heart, your very life sees life differently in a constant being renewed way. And then what happens? You discern what is the will of God, how he would have you live. By what is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's still very much in the work of of refining and changing and transforming his rescued people. Our oppression wasn't necessarily Egypt. It was something far more deeper. It was our own sin. And God is at work still even now. Not done with you. 
God's not done with you. You might feel done. You might feel well done. (laughs) But God's not done tenderizing you. He's not done at work in your heart. Your sin isn't going to get the last word. Jesus gets that last word. And because Jesus gets the last word, do you want to know the last word that you are going to hear? Welcome. Well done. Good and faithful servant. That's how much God cares for his rescued ones. He will not quit you. So, your redeemed life gets to be an extension, an expression of God's grace in this world. And as you grow in delighting in him as ultimate, you get to display more and more of his grace in this world. And that, my friends, will truly be counter-cultural. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace that you give in Christ. And that how he takes on the weight and burden of this Old Testament, of this law, of all of it, of all the promises, of all the laws, of all the prophecy. He takes it all on to his strong and forever strong shoulders. And he, he does what we could not do to give what we could not gain. God, I pray that my, our hearts would be driven toward him and that finding in him one who will supply the grace needed to live out this life, delighting in you and displaying your grace in this world. May we be a people who reflect just how awesome you are in the way that we live. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Before we stand for our benediction, um, this whole week we've been fighting the uh, thaw, freeze, fall, three, uh, you know, I'm not even going to say it all tongue-tied. But anyway, the ones, the same fight that you've been doing at your house, right? So this walkway has just been a sheet of ice all week. And we haven't been able to stay on top of it, or at least ahead of it. So what we're going to do this week is different than what we've been doing. Uh, we're actually going to exit out the way that you came in. So just in terms of out of abundance of caution, uh, which I'm sure we're all happy to hear that phrase yet again, Um, we're going to start with these two middle sections. They'll go out that way first. And then uh, this end will go, and then this end will go after that. I think that all makes sense. All right. Please stand for the benediction. Benediction comes from the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Grace, as you leave this room, grace be with you all. All you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen and amen.